we are hoping to show you just what is possible out there in our strange and wondrous world. One of the dogs started to howl. Almost immediately, all 400 dogs that were there started to howl along with it. We travel for business. We travel for pleasure. The conditions can change so quickly and it became very challenging to maneuver that kayak. We travel to expand our minds. Of course, the most dangerous animal in Africa is the hippo. More people are killed by hippos than anything else. Whether it's one state over. I was looking for a longer treatment, like 90 days, six months, and my treatment plan was to go hike the Appalachian Trail. Or halfway around the globe this fantastic high desert. You watch the sky at night, so you just see the Milky Way and shooting stars. If the world's a book, why only read one page? I'm Elizabeth Hill, and you're listening to a WAMC Northeast Public Radio production. This is Postcards from the Road. Traversing Iceland by foot, Mongolia by horseback, Arabia by camel, and the Blue Nile Gorge by raft, Bruce Kirkby's journeys span 80 countries around the world. In his new book, Blue Sky Kingdom, we follow Kirkby, his wife, and his two sons as they hop on a freighter and make a remarkable three-month journey from Canada to the Himalayas. As a heads-up, we did experience some technical difficulty with Kirkby's microphone, and we appreciate your understanding in this crazy, crazy time. I started off by asking the writer, photographer, and now author what prompted his adventure halfway around the globe. It's going to sound like a small overreaction, but it, it, it was really that sense of disconnection and distraction uh, and this was early in, in the kind of evolution of the cell phone and how it can really strip mine so much of our attention. And there's a moment, and I open the book with it, when I'm at the breakfast table finding myself staring at Facebook and Twitter. I don't know. And my sons are telling me something and they said, you don't hear anything we just said. And I realized they're right. So they just had this growing intuition that I had to do something, to change something. And so, yes, going, traveling halfway around the world to go live in a Buddhist monastery may seem like an overreaction, but it was a, an impulse or an instinct that I wanted to connect more deeply with my family and with life and with living. And you didn't just travel halfway around the globe. You did it by, I think, every mode of transportation possible. It's not easy now to, you know, these big overland journeys were once kind of the only way, in fact, at one time to get to the other side of the world, but but now it's not easy. So yes, we had to really work to patch it together. Getting across the Pacific was a big challenge and we, we found our, we got our way onto a container ship. From then it was like bullet train and riverboat and taxi and rented Jeep as we made our way through China and then over Tibet and down into Nepal and finally up into the foothills of India. And, and then the last 10 days we're, we're hiking on these ancient foot trails that led across the great Himalaya range into this hidden valley. So I wanted to go back to the freighter because I just find this fascinating. <laughs> what was the journey like on the freighter and how long did it take to get across the Pacific? It was a, it was a 17-day sea journey. And so we left from Vancouver and made landfall at Busan, South Korea. And it was absolutely marvelous. It was I, I have to admit, and parents who are listening will understand, so our boys were three and seven at the time. And so they, in a sense, require constant attention, which is both the beauty and the challenge of parenting as you're going through that early childhood stage. There was a large part of me that felt, 
I could just sit and look at the ocean all day. It's like a cruise ship with no one else on it. And it's, it's not that I'm an introvert, but it was, it was lovely. We could do a kilometer long walk around the circumference. We had the, felt like we had this inside view of this operating vessel. There was a, you know, 18 Filipino crew and about 10, uh, mostly Polish or German officers running this. And we, and we were just adopted in to be part of that little culture, that little society. And so, there, it was surprising. My wife thought we were going to be sleeping like in a cold, wet bilge amongst rats. And, I and, mean, that's so she, kind of what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> so when we got on board in Vancouver, the captain said, let me take you to your cabin. We got in an elevator. We went up to the seventh floor of the superstructure. And this door said owner's cabin. And we opened it up and it was carpeted with mahogany desks and oh. double beds. And so she was very pleased and, we, and there were lovely, you know, the ship runs on a tight schedule. There are meals every at nine o'clock and tea at 1030 and then lunch at noon. So it, it was all uh, quite uh, civilized and really enjoyable. Your kids are three and seven. What was the experience like for them? It's tough to answer how, what, how much they remember because we talk about the journey a lot now. And uh, when you look at children and children traveling, there's kind of a, a really instinctive, uh, I don't want to say negative reaction, but concern that there's a lot of dangers right. involved and that the kids aren't going to remember it and so forth. Uh, kids to me and, and, you know, in my kind of, experience bringing up my two boys what you know we often hear kids spell love t-i-m-e and and that's what we just we are it's very hard to give the children that level of attention in a busy distracted society and so for christine and myself our journeys this one and others have have in a in a sense been a way to really pay attention to the boys spend time with them and so when you ask what the journey was like for them i feel what it ultimately feels like is it created this deep bonding reservoir between the four of us that we can draw on we have to go back and refill that reservoir at times but we spent six months really exclusively in the company of each other and paying attention to each other and so i saw the children flourish in that i of course saw them gain all types of attention they learned to speak little snippets of phrases and other languages children's are are so adaptable yeah. and as long as they have that foundation of love and of certainty and and so you know, even my older son's on the autism spectrum. There's a lot of concern about the the uncertainty of travel. But every night we slept together in the same room, and during you know on the road, it was there. There was a routine that that is evolved, and then once we got to the monastery, even more routine. So, uh, it it was really a a time of growth for both the boys. Now, I would categorize your new book as a travel memoir of spiritual awakening, and I know um, you talked about it in your book that you kind of shied away from organized religion, but you're in this insanely spiritual place. What was your thoughts about the Buddhist religion and staying in the monasteries? Yeah, I, you're right. In my background science and, and I have an engineering degree. And so I, I found myself on a rational level often, um, you know, being challenged by, by some spiritual aspects. My wife would talk about Mercury in retrograde or something, <laughs> I, and I'd start trying to analyze it. Yeah. Um, but I'd always, even before this trip, felt a real uh, sense of comfortableness with uh, particularly Himalayan Buddhism, but Buddhism in general. I'd been on you know many expeditions to the Himalaya. And 
there was something just about the whole demeanor of my Sherpa teammates, that the, the, the villages that we visited, the monasteries that we passed through, um, that made me both curious and yeah, I, I think this is a weird thing to say, but I'm kind of protective of wilderness, and, and I love to not see wilderness marred. But right. when you, if, you, if anyone has traveled in the Himalaya, they'll they'll be familiar with prayer flags on hilltops and stones painted with Buddhist script, and it may be the only example in my mind of of a human enhancement to to a wilderness landscape. Like it feels, it just belongs there. So I felt this real sense of comfort with it, and I think. To answer your question, when I experienced that Buddhist tradition and that Buddhist culture in its natural, innate landscape, over when time stretched out, when there was no rush, uh, it, it allowed things to open in me. And and yeah, perhaps there is a, definitely a sense of, of spiritual awakening in the book. Um, and, and even on a pragmatic level, be, being ever the engineer, yeah. part of what I, I saw there was was that. The community in Zanskar and the, the uh, in that monastery had learned basically um, and valued their attention and learned how to marshal and have some agency over their attention, which is a skill we've lost control of uh, in in the Western world in many ways because it's yanked this way and that by every, everyone's trying to grab our attention, and so not only that, yeah, huge amount of respect for for the Himalayan Buddhists, but I felt that that time there just started to allow maybe you know sealed over parts of me to crack open a little bit and be more open to it you talk about coming to grips with your son's autism diagnosis how how did this trip affect your your thoughts on that well there's there are a number of things but i'm going to touch on one that feels really foundational to me and it has to do with that ancient tibetan ancient zanzari culture that we were uh immersed in and the whole book is tinged with this sadness that that is going to be washed away with modernity a road being pushed into that valley everything that we're experiencing all these new doors that are opening in our hearts and minds uh, are, are the, these things are going to be lost. And there's a, a, a sadness in that. And it's a, a, a nostalgic sadness in a way that we all as humans share as things move on. But I find myself wondering, why can't development go in two ways? Why can't change come into the valley? But why can't we learn all these lessons, important things that the Zanskaris have? And in a way, I see that we are really, uh, with the best intentions, we're bringing in medicine, we're bringing in um, education and technology to ease the rigors of living, we are bending the Zenskaris towards our way of being. And I see the parallel in Bodhi as a parent of a child on the spectrum. And I think uh, parents out there who have children, whether uh, with a diagnosis, whether it's on the spectrum or with ADHD or dyslexia or anything, uh, we get very focused on interventions. We get very focused on help and it's all so good natured and, and it comes from a place of true love and it's important. But I realized in, a, in, in the oddest sense, we're almost colonizing our children. We're almost trying to bend them towards our way of being normal. And I realized through the, that coming to terms you talk of with Bodhi, uh, there, there's just a, a real growing awareness of the importance of me at times sharing, meeting him where he is right. and, and bending myself towards him. And, and so I was seeing that both with the local culture and with my own son. And so it was a very kind of powerful awakening that, that took place during that time for me. So after weeks of traveling by freighter, bus, train, riverboat, and then trekking, <laughs> you reach Karsha Gompa, 
Yes, correct? very good. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what was your family's first reaction? Well, it's an absolutely stunning place. So monasteries in the Zanskar Valley and, and in much of Tibetan Buddhism in general are built in absolutely striking locations. And this is really an attempt to balance the kind of need, need for meditative seclusion of the monks with proximity to an alms-bearing village. So they'll be, you know, in massive caves or on top of spires or in the case of Karshagampa, uh, it is on these very, very tall and sheer thousand foot high cliffs on the, uh, you know, on the edge of this valley overlooking the union of these two great rivers. And so you, it, it looks basically like swallow's nest, barnacled to these cliffs way up off the ground. And you see it and you just think, you know, that can't even be real. And then you think we're going to be living there for the next three months. It, it looks like something out of, you know, a, a movie or a fairy tale. It's really physically stunning. And uh, and then we met actually Lama Wangal, the man, the ex head Lama of the monastery who, who took our family in at the base of the steep trail leading up. And that was just as overwhelming a meeting. He welcomed us. Our children just felt so comfortable with them. He took both their hands in his and started walking up this trail. And Christine and I looked at each other like, is this really happening? Is this our family? Because both our children are somewhat um, leery of strangers. And here right. they just took this old man's hands and walked up towards this these swallows nests, particled up this sheer cliffs. It was quite amazing. So were you able to stop by newer monasteries on your way through? How does it compare to Karshagompa? Yeah, we, we on our way, th we saw many monasteries in Tibet. And Tibet, you know, is, is suffering under... Uh, the annexation and the kind of recent history of Chinese cultural revolution and attempts to, to, in many ways, control Buddhism in in Tibet. So those monasteries um, are are tinged with sadness. But on our way out, after we spent this time in this ancient monastery, we came to a road that's a very popular tourist destination uh, in northern Ladakh, Lamiuru. And the monastery there basically felt like a museum. Like we didn't really see any monks or novices. All the right. artifacts were behind plexiglass or huge signs all over in German and English and probably some other languages. And so it felt that in that monastery, we saw the future of Karshigampa, which was still really operating as, you know, as it was meant to be as part of that, uh, as, as a vital part of that community in that valley. Is there anything else you would like to add about your trip with your family? You know, the, the only thing that I would, the, the kind of overall idea that, that this time with that ancient culture left me with was, was so, this idea that our attention, we are all aware of the precious nature of time, that life's ephemeral, that it, that it is fleeting, and that in our own ways we have to find, the do the best we can to engage deeply with it. And what my time in Zanskar helped, I suppose, illuminate for me was this idea that it's not just time, it's attention. And when I say attention, it's what we're placing our attention on, on a kind of second by second, minute by minute basis in this very, very busy world. And that's something we don't often spend a lot of time thinking about. It's something we don't have a lot of control over. Uh, because we kind of allow our attention to do whatever it pleases. We call it the monkey mind, or the Buddhists call it the monkey mind. It gets yanked all over the place. And learning however we do that, through mindfulness, through simply quiet times, through Buddhism, to be able to exert some control over that attention really uh, changes or has a power to change our path through life. And in many ways, that's what this book was all about. 
Now, you are a Canadian adventurer, and you've been to multiple countries. Part of it reads like a James Bond film. Um, (laughs) I have to ask you about Ethiopia and Myanmar. So in Ethiopia, I was in Ethiopia in 1999 for the first time with a a, um, crew from National Geographic. We're making a first descent, uh, or I shouldn't say a first descent, but a first descent in the modern era of the Blue Nile, which is the larger volume-wise tributary of the Nile, the White Nile starts in the mountains of the moon in Uganda, but the Blue Nile has this huge gorge, three times the size of um, the Grand Canyon in depth and scale. And and it was quite high adventure. I mean, we were taken hostage by use with Kalashnikovs. We had crocodiles attack the boats. Uh, We had a mule thief come during the night and and we'd actually had a tributary um, flood that day and wash away some of our mules. We were on the trek into the river and, and our armed guards had all got drunk on local uh, rakshi, this kind of fermented alcohol. And they came out of their tents drunk, naked with their Kalishnikovs. And I remember being in my little yellow dome tent seeing muzzle flashes all around. So yes, that was high adventure uh, all along. The Ethiopians were amazing. The highlands, I'll just say that for your listeners that it was a during the rainy season, it was lush and green. The people obviously lived in very adverse uh, conditions in quite extreme poverty. Um, but as always, the, the beauty of the human spirit and, and how much they were willing to uh, embrace and the, our crew and the curiosity they had, it was that was a very special journey for me. Uh, and Myanmar, which is uh, was Burma, and some of your listeners may know it as Burma, right. uh, I was there as it was opening uh, an area called the Murgi Archipelago, which is off the coast of the Kra Isthmus, which is where uh, Thailand uh, and Peninsular Malaysia join and uh there there's about 800 jungle tufted islets there that have been out of bounds and we were getting permission to go in them uh but then the permission was somewhat revoked and we tried to you know escape at that point we were so close my wife and i had a sea kayak and we were pursued by the authorities and eventually caught and tossed into jail well not really tossed in jail but you know put put in holding and then we were kicked out of the country and we came back in and we eventually made our (laughs) way to uh to a very remote uh city of a hundred thousand people on the coast which was a truly magical uh travel experience yeah so so i've always enjoyed um just understanding the differences and diversities that still exist on our planet i've been very lucky to, to see some of the places like that so my final question is how are you coping with not being able to travel amid the pandemic and what advice do you have to all of um, your fellow travelers who are just itching to get back out there? (laughs) Well, we'd actually planned as soon as this book came out to leave on a year-long surfing trip. So to me, surfing is like the yin and yang of uh, Buddhism. Surfing forces you to be present just by physically requiring you to pay attention to the waves. And I've always found a spiritual and very mystic nature to to surfing so uh, and i'd read a beautiful book about a, a man who spent a year surfing on the north california coast and I, i've always wanted to repeat that and spend a year on one section of coast and write about it and everyone was keen and then COVID descended and and we have joked that in a sense our time in the monastery was like COVID training because we were in close <laughs> proximity to loved ones we had this sense of oceanic time and shrunken possibilities I, I, I think I would say two things. Uh, to, first, to people itching to travel, that uh, it will come back. I, you know, I have no doubt um, our world will be different because of this, but all the wonders that are out there, 
they'll even be sweeter when we're able to to uh, you know explore them and travel again. So that that'll come, and I think really more urgently to to everyone, we see these things. You know, spending close time with our family within our bubble as uh, it's it's a challenge. It's a difficult thing, but what I saw at Karshagampa was with with time with attention. Uh, it was I, I'd almost use the analogy of a speed bump. You got to a point where that became comfortable. But if you can, you know, all the things that that allow us to fight that in the modern world, and we do that by distraction with our phones, you know, going into the bathroom and scrolling through Twitter while we're on the toilet, whatever. We we constantly have these little escapes. And all of those were removed from us at Karshagop. And that allowed me to kind of immerse in that more deeply. And and then all of a sudden, I don't want to say that it becomes easy, but obviously it becomes natural. We are meant to spend time just quietly together with our, our bubble. And, and really incredible things start to happen. So I, I would hope for people listening that despite the challenges of all this and despite the fear that's associated with the uncertainty of the pandemic and whatnot, that actual sense of being just really forced to pay attention to the ones we love. Uh, it, it, I'm not trying to be the guy making lemonade out of lemons, but it can be a huge gift. Yeah. That was writer and photographer Bruce Kirkby discussing his new memoir, Blue Sky Kingdom, published by Pegasus. Postcards from the Road is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. I am your host and producer, Elizabeth Hill. Our theme music is Cherry Blossom Wonders by Kevin McLeod. As always, if you like what you hear, subscribe on your audio app of choice. Visit WAMCpodcasts.org for more information. If you would like to share your travel story with postcards, email us at postcards at WAMC.org. 